Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you may know, we're in a series on the parables of Yeshua. Uh, today's part three. Uh, today I'd like to talk about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus which, uh, just as a disclaimer, some people claim is actually not a parable, but it's a true story. Uh, some say it's a parable, but regardless, we're going to study it together today. So if you have your scriptures, and we have that on the overhead as well, turn with me to uh, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. So, uh, Gospel of Luke. And Yeshua says this. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Uh, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what, what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came in and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, that I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him come and warn them, so they won't also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Wow. This famous parable brings out probably uh, the two most controversial truths that our society hates the most about the Bible. That God is a judge, and that he assigns some people to hell. And the objection goes like this. How can a loving God send people to hell? If God is really love, if he's really love, like you say he is, uh, then, then he would never send anyone to hell. That's the objection. Now, Yeshua uh, talks about hell more than anyone. More than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, all the the writers of the Bible combined together don't talk as much about hell as Yeshua does. And in fact, he talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. Hell is a real place. It is not figurative. In fact, in number 16, the Torah says that three families were literally thrown into hell alive. The earth opened up and swallowed them physically into hell. The book of Revelation 
says that the anti-Messiah and the false prophet will be hurled alive uh, into the fiery lake that burns and blazes with brimstone. So they just don't go there with their souls. Their whole bodies are thrown into the lake of fire. Notice in this parable, the rich man's in torment. He's in agony in these fires of hell. Notice also the rich man, he's fully conscious. uh, And then he recognizes Abraham and Lazarus up in heaven, uh, and they recognize him. This tells us that people are still very much human beings in hell. Very recognizable. And they still have their reasoning faculties and facilities. They still have their emotions. They still have their wills. They still have their physical features because Abraham and Lazarus, they recognize him. They still have their senses because the rich man can still see and hear and feel pain. He's in agony. He's thirsty. He can still feel thirst. He can speak. So you have all your senses in hell. You can still touch and smell and taste and see and feel and hear. And you still have some form of flesh because uh, he wanted his tongue cooled. In fact, Yeshua says that the worms eat the flesh of those in hell nonstop, forever and ever. Forever and ever, the worm never dies. So people have some form of flesh in hell. And in Matthew 10, 28, put this in the overhead, uh, Yeshua says this, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He doesn't say just the soul is destroyed, but he also says the body. So you have some type of body in hell. And both body and soul are eternally punished in hell. The Bible says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Also note the rich man, he's pleading for mercy. Uh, But he doesn't get any because hell is a place of no escape forever. There is no escape. No one will ever come to bring you comfort, though it's greatly longed for. Because there's this chasm between heaven and hell that cannot be crossed. You know, people sometimes joke about how hell is going to be this one great party, and, and all my friends are going to be there. It's going to be this great place. There is no party. There are no friends. No relationships, no fellowship. Just total darkness and isolation and torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Indeed, the rich man, he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers so that they don't go there. Uh, uh, There's zero interaction in hell. So you still have the desire, even though you still have the desire for it. The rich man didn't want his brothers to come and have to suffer all of this. Hell is a place of absolute loneliness and hopelessness and despair. It's also a place of eternal remembrance and regret. And to bring home some of the, a little bit of the reality of, of hell, I remember very recently hearing an actual testimony about this, a true story. A young man fell into a construction ditch, and the ditch was full of water, and he could not swim. And he couldn't climb out either because the walls were just made of dirt. His brother ran to get help, but when help finally, by the time help finally got there, he had been dead for 30 minutes. And in relating his experience, he said, When I left my body, it was just like taking your hand out of a glove. 
all my senses were completely intact. I could still see, I could still hear, I could still feel. And when I came out of my body, I began to go into the earth. I began to go at a very rapid rate. And the darkness was so dark, I felt like I was wearing it. I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face, it was so dark. And the fear was indescribable. I can't even begin to describe it, he says. I thought the fear couldn't get any worse. But the further down I went, the worse it got. I started screaming. I remember I could hear myself screaming. I was yelling, why am I going here? I'm a believer in Yeshua. My parents were born again. But I was just going through the motions. I really wasn't a believer. But at the time, I thought I was. I was going further down into the darkness, and then I heard the screams. The screams were so horrific that they made my blood freeze in my veins. I came to what what I knew was the entrance of hell. A being with scales grabbed me. I began to fight with it. Then all of a sudden, a voice spoke and said, Let him go. And the being said, No, he's mine. Then the voice shouted, Let him go, he's mine. And the being let me go. And I woke up, butting the thumb of the doctor who was trying to resuscitate me. And the whole time my mom and my dad, they were praying, God, if you give our son, you give him back to us, we will give him to you forever. This young man has has been in the ministry ever since. Hell is a real place. It's real. I heard a preacher once actually say, the biblical imagery of hellfire is probably metaphorical. And everybody in the audience gave this collective sigh of relief. But then he said, it's metaphorical for something far worse. Far worse than actual physical fire. But I want to emphasize today that the biblical understanding of how it's actually crucial to our faith. And yes, it may be actually infinitely worse than fire. But I'm going to put these three things in the overhead we're going to look at today about hell, about understanding the truths about hell, as again, which Yeshua spoke about extensively, that it's crucial for three things. Understanding the truths about hell are crucial, number one, for understanding your own heart. Number two, for living at peace in this world. And three, for knowing the love of God. Again, understanding, understanding these truths about hell is crucial for understanding your own heart, for living in peace in this world, and for understanding and knowing your own heart. Now, I know all this sounds counterintuitive, uh, but let's look at them. First, understanding hell is crucial to, to know and to understand your own heart. The parable has two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the poor man, the rich man and the poor man. And in this parable, this is the only parable in the entire New Testament where one of the characters, uh, the poor man, has a proper name. His name is Lazarus, in Hebrew, Eliezer, meaning God is my help. Uh, but one of the, so one of these characters has a name, so why doesn't the other character have a name? Why doesn't the rich man have a name? You know, in this parable, uh, there's a named character and a nameless character. And the contrast is deliberate. What does it mean? 
You know, in Israel at that time, the rich man could not possibly have been an atheist or pagan. The rich man would have believed in God, would have prayed to God, would have obeyed the law of God, but nonetheless, he's in hell without a name. Why? Let's look at verse 25, Luke 16, 25. Abraham replied, son, to the rich man. Remember that in, in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus, his bad things. Abraham says to the rich man, you've already had your good things. All the good things you wanted, you had them. The best things, the things you built your life upon, you had them. You know, the philosophers talk about what's called the sonum bonum, uh, the highest good, the greatest good. Uh, the highest good in your life. So let's ask ourselves today, what is my highest good? What is the thing that I live for? What's my ultimate value? What is it that for me gives meaning to my life? What is it that gives me a sense of who I am? Ask yourself, for whatever your best thing is, whatever your highest thing is, your greatest value, that's what gives you your identity. This rich man already had all his good things in the past tense. He had them, his status, his wealth. That was the basis for his identity. And now that the status and the wealth are, are, are all gone, um, there's no him left. He has no identity left. He was either a rich man or nothing. So now he has no identity left. It's gone. It's nameless. Because when you take away everything you built your life on, like his, his status and his wealth, he has no identity and therefore no name left. Because hell is the place where everything is taken away. So what's the alternative? If someone takes away everything, what's the alternative? Soren Kierkegaard, this famous Danish philosopher and Christian existentialist, he wrote a book called Sickness unto death. And in his book, he wrestles with the definition of sin. Uh, and ultimately, he defines sin as this, as building your identity on anything other than God. Of course, he knows the traditional definition of sin, which is breaking God's law. And of course, he agrees that breaking God's law is wrong. But he wonders whether this is really a sufficient definition of sin. And the reason is the Pharisees. He says, here's the Pharisees, they're following the law, fastidiously, and yet they're lost. Why? Uh, the Pharisees serve as their own Savior and Lord, because they're seeking to earn their own salvation. To put God in a, in a position that because they're being so good, he has to bless them. He has to answer their prayers. He has to give them a good life. He has to take them to heaven. Now, when the Pharisees, by outwardly obeying the law, do all that, trying in effect to, to earn their own salvation, they're actually building their identity, not on God, but on their own moral performance. Uh, they're getting their status, they're getting their, their self-worth uh, from their outward morality and religiosity, and it's destroying their character. Because inside, they're filled with pride. Uh, and ravaging self-righteousness and rigidity uh, and superiority. And outside, they're filled with judgmentalism uh, and unforgiveness. Uh, uh, and it's wreaking havoc. Why? 
Let me put this on the, put this on the overhead. It's because the best definition of sin is building your identity on anything but God. Taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. Kierkegaard, he's being radically biblical here. And he's following Romans 6 and 7 regarding the radically inward nature of sin. Now, the human heart really works. Sin is taking even a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. If you look at anything in this life and you say, if I had that, then I would be so happy. Then my life would have, would have meaning and importance and value. And if I don't have that, I'm nothing. When you do that, you've made an idol. If you look at money, uh, or career, or your talents, or your looks, or your athletics, or, or pleasure, or a relationship, or, or power, or approval, or comfort, or, or control, you look at any of these things and make them fundamental to your significance and your security more than the love and the knowledge of God, then although you may believe in the, in the God of the Bible, and you may pray to the God of the Bible, and you may obey the laws of the God of the Bible, but your faith, your justification of your life, the roots of your identity, what you really worship, in other words, is something else. And that status, what it does is it starts within your heart a spiritual cosmic fire. That's what the metaphor of hellfire is ultimately all about. You're building your identity in anything other than God, it will start a fire that will consume you. Now, we know a lot about the devastation of addiction. Addiction wreaks havoc both inwardly and outwardly. Uh, it's this devastation. First, there's, there's the disintegration uh, that happens uh, to people who are addicted. Uh, because as the addiction proceeds, you need more and more, of course, uh, of the addictive substance to get less and less of the kick, uh, of the high, of the satisfaction. So you need more and more of the substance, and you do anything and everything to get it, to get less and less of the satisfaction. And that leads to, number one, first uh, effect of, of addiction is disintegration. Another result of addiction is isolation. You've got to lie. You've got to defend yourself. You're always blaming everybody else and everything else for all your problems. So you say things like, no one understands me. Everyone's against me. And of course, that's all part of denial. So there's disintegration, there's isolation, there's denial. Denial is the inability to see what's really happening. Yeah, getting more and more out of touch with reality. And you might say, yeah, I think I know someone, maybe second or third hand, that, 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 uh, that, that, that I know this devastation of the people who's got these kind of addictions to various substances. But what if uh, the Iron Giant is right? Remember that, that little cartoon movie, The Iron Giant? Uh, in the movie, there's a place where he says, souls don't die. Souls can't die. Uh, and if he's right, and the Bible says he is, uh, soul, your soul after death goes on forever. Your personal consciousness goes on forever. Um, uh, if the Iron Giant is right, number one, and number two, if Kierkegaard is right, that every single person, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're moral or immoral, every person is addicted, as it were, in grounding your very identity, taking your very self from something besides God which can never give you the satisfaction that you, you hope it can give you. If we're addicted in this ultimate sense and our souls go on forever, what does that mean? Well, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. We'll put this on the overhead. He says this. 
Christianity asserts we're going to go on forever. Uh, that must either be true or false. Now, there's a good many things that I would that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to go on forever. For example, perhaps my bad temper, my, my jealousy, they're getting worse so gradually that in my lifetime, it won't be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself. We wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there'll be no you left to criticize or even enjoy the mood, but just the grumble itself going on and on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question, he says, of God, quote, sending us to hell, uh, because in, in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. Fire. You watch a log uh, in the fire. It's, it's falling apart, disintegrating. Uh, it's one thing to love a career, but if you build your identity on a career and something goes wrong with it, you're not just wounded and hurt, which you should be, but you're absolutely devastated. You feel worthless, you want to th throw yourself off a cliff. Disintegration. It's okay to love someone and to want to be loved. But if you build your entire identity on that, and there's a problem in your relational life, you won't just be hurt and wounded, which you should be. You'll be devastated. You'll feel worthless. You want to jump off a bridge. When you make good things into ultimate things, your good things end up enslaving you. They start to disintegrate you. They start to isolate you. So when something gets in the way of them, instead of just being afraid, now you're paralyzed. Instead of just being angry, now you're implacably bitter. Instead of just being despondent, you endlessly hate yourself forever and ever. It's a fire. Do you see this in yourself? Do you not see where it's going? And most of all, the denial. C.S. Lewis has an interesting line. He says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. People locked in addictions, what do they say? They say, this isn't very good, I know, but I can't imagine being anywhere else. Nobody understands. It's not as bad as you say. I can handle it. That's denial. And it's hell. And this text here, our parable, confirms it. Uh, look at the insanity, the out of touch with reality uh, that, that characterizes people in hell. Uh, this rich man, he's astonishingly blind. Uh, he's in denial. He's full of blame shifting. So, for example, he says, uh, here's Lazarus up in heaven, and the rich man's down in hell. But notice, he's still trying to order Lazarus around. He wants Lazarus to come down and cool his tongue. He expects him to be a servant. And notice something else. He doesn't ever ask to get out of hell. Rather, he tries to get Lazarus in. <laughs> he doesn't ask to get out. And he strongly insinuates 
that God didn't give him enough information. He says, go to my five brothers and, and give them the information. What's that? Hint, hint, I didn't get enough information. Nobody understands me. I really shouldn't be here. Oh, and besides that, it's not really all that bad. I don't want to be up there with all those hypocrites and, and humbugs. You won't see me begging for that, for, for, uh, that God's bleeding charity. You won't see me begging God. But please, by the way, send somebody to cool my tongue. For I'm in agony. And then go warn my brothers lest they come to this place here. Notice how, how schizophrenic uh, and irrational and inconsistent he is. So here's the summary. Let me put this in the overhead. Summary. At one level, hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God that goes on forever. Ultimately, hell is, is a freely chosen identity that where you base something, your identity on something other than God going on and on and getting worse and worse forever and ever. Disintegrating, disintegrating, disintegrating. And refusing to admit what it is. Well, C.S. Lewis says this. We'll put this in the overhead as well. He says, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins at all costs and give them a fresh start? He did. On Calvary. To forgive them? But they don't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone? But that's what hell is. There's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All who are in hell on one level choose it. And without that choice, it wouldn't be hell. Understanding the nature of hell is important for any believer. We need to see ourselves as spiritual addicts, apart from the intervening grace of God. And that's crucial to know what's going on in your life. You have to see the seriousness of it. What you do as a believer many times, uh, you watch the fires within you start to come up. You try to put them out. But the only way to truly deal with your problems and your flaws and your habits and your addictions is with the gospel. It's with God's grace. And these issues and temptations and, and sinful habit patterns, they do come up from time to time. Uh, that's what we're made of. What will extinguish it? You've got to run to Yeshua and find your ultimate identity in Him and in Him alone. So ask yourself, who am I today, really? Have I got a core identity, a name? Is your identity based on what God has done for you in Yeshua? What God thinks of you in Yeshua? Based on being a child of the King, is that where your identity is? Is it based on being a citizen of heaven, and your mission is to partner with Yeshua to bring about His kingdom here on earth? Have you got... Ask yourself, have I got a fundamental core identity that's there? No matter what the circumstances, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what happens, do I know who I am in Yeshua? Do I have that immovable stability, that firm hope that's an anchor for my soul? Or am I just a businessman or a businesswoman? Uh, am I just a musician or an artist? Am I just a lawyer? Am I just a mother or a father or a student? Are you willing to look deep 
as deep within yourself as this doctrine is, call, is calling you to look. So number one, without the doctrine of hell, you don't really know yourself. We'll put this on the overhead. You can't understand your own heart and uh, what makes you tick. Uh, number two, without the doctrine of hell, highlighting these issues of your real identity and your addictions and your idols so that you can deal with them without all that, you cannot live in peace in this world. Now, there's many people who, who fear that if you believe in the doctrine of God's judgment and hell, that it will cause you to disdain classes of people or even oppress them. So, for example, uh, Wendy Kaminer, uh, she writes for The Nation, which is the secular liberal magazine, and she recently interviewed Pastor Rick Warren. And she claimed, she attacked him, and she claimed this. She says, your faith is inherently divisive. At the end of the day, you say that non-Christians, however devout, are lost. So what are the prospects, she asks, of equal citizenship for those of us like me who are so-called damned by our refusal to be born again? She's saying that you Bible-believing Yeshua followers are, are unable to treat us non-believers as equal citizens because you think we're, we're, we're lost and judged and damned. So you're going to oppress us ultimately. You're going to disdain us. You're going to think it's okay to marginalize us. But her objection totally misses the point of what the Bible says about hell. Because it's not just I mean, really something that, that God violently imposes upon you against your will. And it's interesting, you know, when Abraham looks down from heaven and he speaks to the, this stupid rich man who's in hell, who's completely out of touch with the reality, what does Abraham call him? Does Abraham say, you evil sinner? No. What does he say? He says, son. Technon, the, the Greek. Uh, it's a term of endearment. It means child or my, or my son. There, there's pathos here. There's sadness. There's a sense of tragedy. And Yeshua, Abraham, uh, Yeshua, they don't look at people who are on their way to the, the fires of hell with any kind of disdain or hatred or animosity. Almost the opposite. Not, not, in, all, not in all any of this. They look at them with compassion and regret and sorrow. Moreover, this objection does not understand what Miroslav Volf wrote in his famous book, Exclusion and Embrace. Miroslav Volf is a, was a, is a Croatian pastor. He had first-hand experience in the terrible uh, violence and bloodshed of the Balkans in the 1980s, 90s. And he saw people there for years and years locked into this cycle of, of violence, uh, violence and vengeance and, and retaliation. Uh, you did this to us, so we're going to do this to you. You did this to us 500 years ago, so we're going to do this to you today. But he says in his book that this cycle of retaliation is not fueled by a belief in a God of judgment. In fact, just the opposite. Rather, it's fueled by a lack of a belief in a God of judgment. And he writes this. He put this in the overhead. He says, if God were not angry at injustice... That kind of God wouldn't be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that judgment is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in a divine vengeance, this thesis will be unpopular with many, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe that human nonviolence Results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. 
In a land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it'll invariably die, along with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What's he, what is he, what's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, if you've talked to people who've had their, their homes burned, who've seen their wives and their daughters and their mothers killed and raped, how are you going to keep them from picking up the sword and being sucked into this, style, this cycle of violence and retaliation? What are you going to do? Are you simply going to say to them, now remember, violence doesn't solve anything. Not only, it's not like they can do anything. That, that, that such moralizing will not touch their hearts, will not change their mind, and moreover, it shows no concern for real justice. And anyone who's really been wrong like that says justice must be done. And so this pastor, Miroslav Wolf, he says the only resource that's powerful enough to both pacify the human heart's desire for justice and at the same time keep us from getting sucked into the cycle of violence and, and, and blood is to say there is a God and he will put everything right, everything right in the end. Both says, if you think that not believing in God or not believing in a God of judgment is going to keep you people from being sucked into the cycle of violence, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. If you don't believe there's someone one day is going to make everything right, you will pick up the sword. You will get sucked in. And therefore, he says, if you don't believe in the doctrine of God's judgment, that this is a powerful resource for living with peace on earth, then you have led a sheltered life. You've not experienced vengeance and retaliation and the endless cycle of violence. Belief in a God of judgment is crucial. It's the only resource strong enough to help sinful people, to help you and me live in peace on earth. So number one, the doctrine of hell is necessary to understand your heart. Put this on the overhead, please. Number two, it's necessary to live, on, live in peace on earth. And number three, the doctrine of hell is necessary for knowing the love of God. Now, I can already hear the objections. You say, well, wait a minute, David. The whole idea of a God of judgment who sends people to hell, that seems opposed to the idea of a God of love. But it's not opposed. Not at all. You're wrong. Look at the very end of the parable. What does the rich man ask of Abraham? He wants Abraham to send Lazarus to go down to earth to warn his five brothers. He wants a miracle. He wants Lazarus to come back to, from the dead. And the brothers know Lazarus is dead. So if Lazarus suddenly rises from the dead in front of the five brothers, that's an open supernatural miracle. And he'll raise from the dead. Can you imagine that? Lazarus suddenly rises up, and all the brothers say, Oh my God, it's Lazarus, back from the dead. And Lazarus says, Be warned, there is a hell. What are these brothers going to say? Of course they're going to say, Yes, my God, I better live a good life. I don't want to go to hell. But Abraham says, That may work for a week or two, but ultimately the human heart will, result, will go back into its sin. And even this open miracle will never work. He says they won't be convinced, because this word convinced here means more than just mere rationality. You know, of course they'll be convinced rationally. Uh, they say, 
Here's a letter from beyond the grave from my brother. Well, I guess there really is a hell. The letter says, look out. For Abraham is here is saying mere fear, mere fear of hell, fear of damnation, will not change the fundamental structures of your heart. It will not work. So ironically, the mere fear of hell will never keep you out of it. It won't put out the fire within you. What is your fire? What's wrong with this world? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Self-centeredness? Self-absorption? Me, 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 me. Me, not you. It's me over you. It's me rather than you. It's me first, me instead of you, me dominating you. That's what's wrong with the human heart. It's bent inward upon itself. It's self-centered and self-absorbed. And when you just scare people, people say, I better be good because of the fear of hell. I better be good because of the fear of damnation. Why are they being good? Are they being good for goodness sake? Are they being good for God's sake? Just to please him and delight him? To draw closer to him? To be more like him? No. They're being good for their own sake. For what they can get out of it. It's just more selfishness. Yes, it's moral, moral selfishness, but it's still selfishness. So are they being good for God's sake just to please him and delight him? No. They're using God. You're saying, if I live a good enough life, then God will have to give me the things that I really want, that I'm really basing my identity on. Give me success, God. Uh, give me a model family. Uh, give me the man and the woman of my dreams. Take me to heaven. In other words, God is just a means to an end. To get the things that I really want. To get the things that I'm really building my life on. To get the things... I'm really building my identity on. So just being moral and good and going to shul and reading your Bible and doing all these things out of a fear of hell, all you're really doing ultimately is turning up the flames within you. You're just rearranging the pride and the selfishness and the evil of your heart and hiding it all behind a veneer of outward morality. You're just jury-rigging the evilness of your heart to make yourself a, an outwardly moral person. But you're not really changing your heart. The evil is still there. So what will change the fundamental structures of your heart? Only love. Radical love. Radical, unconditional, self-sacrificial love. Is the only thing that will take our mistrustful, in denial, conniving little hearts and shock them into a whole new way of living and being. Love. Only love. Well, where do we get that kind of heart-transforming love? Yeshua tells us in this parable. The rich man says, if I had someone raised from the dead, you know, a naked miracle, my brothers had that, they'd be changed. But what does Abraham say? He says, no. 
You know, the rich man's response is supposed to make you, he says, you know, he's make you think of somebody, right? He says, somebody who raised from the dead, then they believe. His response is supposed to make you think of someone. Guess who? <laughs> Yeshua. Didn't Yeshua rise from the dead? Yes. Isn't Yeshua rising from the dead enough? No. If Yeshua does something, he would blow up up the top of a mountain and then show up, that would create fear in this world. Oh my God, he must be the Lord. What do I have to do? What do I have to sign? How do I avoid hell? No. Yeshua says the key is you have to know why I died and rose from the dead. Because only that will show you the love involved. And do you know where to find that? Abraham tells the rich man where to find that. Moses and the prophets. Yeshua says you have to know why I died and rose. Well, what do Moses and the prophets say? That's the only place you're going to find love. It's understanding why. So here's the answer. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer, to make his life an offering for sin. Back in Isaiah 52, 14, many were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond the form of any human likeness. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, familiar with pain. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. But surely our grief he took. He took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Verse 10. The Lord made him a korban asham in Hebrew, a guilt offering, or literally guilt, because he became guilt for us. Yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he suffered, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. You don't know how much Yeshua loves you unless you first know how much he suffered for you. What did he suffer on the cross? Now imagine a friend comes to you and says, hey, I was at your house the other day, and a bill came in the mail for you. You weren't there, so I paid it for you. How should you respond? Well, I guess it depends how big the bill was. <laughs> if it was, you know, 10 cents postage due, hey, you might say thank you. But what if the IRS finally found you? <laughs> What if you owed 10 years of back taxes and penalties and interest? Uh, what if it was this enormous debt you could never pay? You see, until you know how much your friend paid for you, you won't know whether to shake his hand or to fall down and kiss his feet. What did, what did Yeshua experience on the cross for you? Hell. Unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much he loved you. You will never know how much he values you. You will never know unless you believe in hell. Why? Why did Yeshua speak about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, all put together? Because on the cross, he took it. The fire of hell fell down into his heart. He descended into hell. 
On the cross, he cried out, Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, to lose the love of a friend hurts. To lose the love of a spouse is, is traumatic. The deeper and the greater the relationship, the more devastating and agonizing the loss of love. On the cross, when Yeshua lost the love of his father, he experienced an agony. He experienced a disintegration. He experienced an isolation infinitely greater than, than, than you and I can, if we could ever imagine. Infinitely greater than you and I would ever experience in an eternity of hells. He took the disintegration and the agony and the isolation that we deserve. He took it upon himself. Why? Because he loves you. And unless you see that he didn't just experience physical pain on the cross, or just emotional pain, or just mental pain on the cross, unless you see the, the spiritual pain uh, that he endured, i.e., unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much he loves you. You will never know how much he cares. Ironically, by getting rid of the, of the idea of judgment in hell, and by trying to make God more loving, they actually make him less. So if somebody says to me, you know, David, I believe in a God of love. I don't believe in, a, in hell or, or judgment. I want to ask them, what did it cost your God to love you? And they say, well, it didn't cost him anything. He just loves everybody. Well, if God just loves everybody, it didn't cost him anything, you know, perhaps I can be glad for, for a God like that. But if I want to be transformed, if I want to sense his wild love, for me, if I want wonder and love and praise, if I want boldness and humility, if I want transformation, if I want to sing a love so amazing and divine that demands my life, my love, my all, then I've got to believe in hell and that Yeshua took that hell that I deserve. He took it upon himself for me so that I could escape hell and be with him in heaven forever. You know, it's easy to twist the biblical doctrine of hell, but to really understand how all the plot lines of the Bible regarding God's justice come together in Yeshua, who's the judge of the earth, who came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment upon himself, to take on hell for you and for me, who were his enemies. If you understand all of that, if you grasp that, it will equip you to live a life of praise and worship to the Lord. And it will equip you to live a life of love and peace towards others. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I want the music team please to come up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today for this powerful story of the rich man and Lazarus and the reality of hell. But thank you for reminding us through this parable that hell is real. That judgment is is real, that your holiness and righteousness are real, and that hell ultimately results because we base our identity on something other than you. So we pray, Lord, that you will show us today where we have gone astray in placing our object or our goal of, of all, our ultimate worth it's somewhere else, or what we're really focusing our identity on, and what our related temptations and addictions and idols are because of it. 
And once you show, to, show us that, Lord, help us not to live in denial about it, but to repent and to find our life uh, and our worldview and our priorities and our goals and our desires and our identity and our all in you, Yeshua, and in you alone. Thank you for showing us why you died, Yeshua, to save us from hell. Thank you for taking upon yourself the hell that we deserved. We can't even begin to fathom the, 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 the level and the depth of love you have for us. And you've shown to us and you've proven to us by suffering the wrath of the Father for us. That we had coming due to us. You, Yeshua, were despised and rejected for us. You, were, you suffered and were afflicted for us. You bore our suffering and our guilt. You were pierced for our transgressions. You, by your stripes, we are healed. Yeshua, your love is so amazing and so divine that it demands my life, my soul, my all, which I now freely give to you. And I pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.